Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A listener in Denmark wrote and asked me to explain the hysteria in the Anglo-American mainstream media and the Democratic Party establishment about Bernie Sanders. I wasn't planning to do it. I had been working on another Bible Study for Atheists edition of FRDH. This one would have been on the judgment of Solomon and the mothers who claimed the same child. But the listener is loyal, and the hysteria is real and dangerous. So I will put the Bible study aside for another day. Bernie Sanders, as we speak, is the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. Given the volatility of politics in the U.S. at the moment, and the size of the Democratic field, that could change, but history will record that in the middle of February 2020, Bernie Sanders led the pack. I'm as surprised as many. A year ago at this time, when asked on BBC News programs about the likely 2020 Democratic nominee, I said I thought the party was still committed to getting a woman into the Oval Office, and there were two solid possibilities, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. And when the New York Times editorial page decided to endorse two women for the Democratic nomination recently, I permitted myself a chuckle. Great minds thinking alike and so on. Even after Bernie declared and Harris dropped out, I still thought Warren would be the nominee. And I was rather pleased by that possibility. Then Bernie had his heart attack, and it seemed like Warren's nomination would come to pass. But then something extraordinary happened. Sanders surged, and Warren faded. I'm in London. I don't know why this occurred, and the main outlets in the American press haven't sought to report out an explanation. Speculate, yes. Report, no. But we've arrived at this moment, and now the panic has set in. The last fortnight has seen an unprecedented series of attacks on the frontrunner. Perhaps the stupidest has been the one saying that nominating Sanders would be like the Labour Party choosing Jeremy Corbyn as leader, and look how that turned out. Corbyn just led Labour to its worst election results since the 1930s. Now, since I live in London, a five-minute walk from Corbyn's constituency, I know a bit about him and can say unequivocally there is no comparison between the two. First of all, Sanders is a politician. Corbyn is not. Persuading voters on a larger and larger scale is something Sanders has had to do to survive as he moved up from small city mayor to the House of Representatives to the Senate. Prior to becoming leader, the most important election Jeremy Corbyn ever faced was his selection meeting at his constituency of Islington North, where local Labour Party officials picked him to stand in what was already a Labour parliamentary stronghold. It had been a Labour seat since 1937, when he was selected in 1983. In Britain, as in the U.S., generations of gerrymandering have rendered most parliamentary seats more or less safe for one party or the other. By the time Corbyn was selected, Islington North was pretty safe. Anyone Labour selected for the seat would have won. Now, compare this to Bernie Sanders' political history. A Brooklyn-born Jewish socialist, he turns up in Vermont in the early 1970s. At the time, Vermont was a Republican state with virtually no Jews living in it, neither Ben Cohen nor Jerry Greenfield, who would build a global ice cream brand synonymous with the state, were living in Vermont just yet. I mean, really, Vermont was one goyish a place. And as for the socialist bit, there weren't a lot of socialists there either. 
Some hippie anarchists had migrated there in the 60s, along with some radical ecology types, but actual socialists? No. Sanders had no natural constituency and had to learn the kind of one-to-one -one persuasion that the best politicians often have as a natural gift. As a legislator, he has learned to compromise. Although he was an independent, he caucused with the Democrats, accepted legislative compromises, and voted for measures that fell well short of his ideals. Now compare this to Corbyn. Actually, first, compare America's legislative ambience to Britain's. Both countries' legislatures are duopolies, perhaps less so in Britain, but in Britain, members of parliament are whipped to take a party line in most votes. You can't do that in the U.S. The country is too vast. The issues each representative's constituents are concerned about too varied. And the best example, Sanders comes from a rural state that takes hunting seriously and so has a more lenient view on gun control than Democratic colleagues in, say, California. Until recently, both parties in America were coalitions so broad as to be essentially unwhippable. Corbyn, in his comfortable safe seat, was free to defy his party whip on votes and did so more than 400 times. He spent most of his time as an MP indulging his passion for speaking at fringe meetings and taking hard left stands that were so outside the mainstream of labor that he could only be described as, and was frequently described as, a crank. Now, there's the difference of ambition. Sanders has sought out twice the Democratic nomination. Jeremy Corbyn is an accidental leader. When his predecessor, Ed Miliband, resigned following Labour's defeat in the 2015 election, a vote was held to determine his successor. Corbyn's name was added to the ballot at the last minute. It was an act of liberal fairness. Corbyn's fellow MPs felt the choice put before the membership should include a representative of the hard left of the party. That's being fair, isn't it? And, boy, the liberal wing of the Labour Party got hoist by its own petard. Miliband had changed the voting rules. Anyone could join the party for less than the price of a pint of ale. And all those people who Corbyn had been entertaining at fringe meetings bought membership and voted him into the leadership position. There is nothing remotely comparable between that process and the lengthy nominating process the Democrats are going through at the moment. I could go on about the political differences between the U.S. and the U.K., and it's really odd that so many of those making the comparison between Sanders and Corbyn in the press learned all about those differences at universities like Oxford and Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. I'm quite amazed they've forgotten them. But I will stop at this final critical point. At no time did public opinion polls show Corbyn's labor having a chance to beat the conservatives. There hasn't been a poll yet that shows Sanders, or any serious Democratic challenger, losing to Donald Trump. Along with fluoride, forgetfulness has been added to the water all Americans drink, so no one remembers that these polls confirm a trend from 2018 and 2019, when Democrats seized back the House of Representatives and took major elections for Southern governorships and legislatures. So how did the dire warnings and campaign of fear against Sanders get so much traction? Why does the American press hate Sanders so much?
I got a hint in the summer of 2009. I was in Washington to make a BBC World Service documentary on what was supposed to be the final stages of the passage of the Affordable Care Act. By chance, I stumbled by a rally across from the Capitol building. A nurses' union had busted in healthcare workers from states within a long day's drive from D.C. Bernie gave a rousing speech to them about the need to reform the health care system. I recorded it and then asked his press guy if I could interview him later in a quieter environment. I went to Sanders' office. We talked about the inviting the fox into the henhouse tactic Obama was using, bringing the big insurance companies into the legislative drafting process. Sanders explained his idea of removing the age restriction on Medicare eligibility, essentially making the government a competitor on price to the big insurance companies. He was grudging of his time, grumpy to the point of rudeness. At one point he muttered, sotto voce, I've already answered this question today. I may even have said, but not for the BBC. His press person stood behind him with an apologetic look on his face. No matter. Sanders understood the relationship between the press and politicians is a game and didn't want to play. I could have written some script to say the same things he was telling me, but his voice made for better listening. I wanted to make a scene in the documentary that would start with the rally and then end with more detailed comment from him about why inviting health insurance companies into the drafting process was a mistake. I needed this interview more than he didn't want to give it to me, and so I won the game that day. By the way, Sanders ultimately voted for what is commonly called Obamacare. A real Corbyn clone would have voted against it because it failed his purity test. Anyway, I imagine decades of similar Bernie, I don't want to play this game rudeness to the Capitol Hill press corps would build resentment. And my brief observation of much of the permanent press corps inside the Beltway is they appreciate the occasional kowtow from the people they cover. And then, actually, we need to go back to the socialist thing. Socialism is an emotive word in America. That may be why Sanders started calling himself an independent as his party identification when he first ran for Congress. But he's no Marxist calling for workers to control the means of production, nationalizing every industry in sight, which is what Corbyn means by socialism. Sanders' ideal program for government is essentially completing the tasks of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Of course, Roosevelt was called a socialist in his time, and the long march of modern American conservatism has regularly deployed the word as it tries to demonize opponents and undo the New Deal, from Social Security to Medicare to regulations on financial services. Another difficulty in comprehending the press's dislike of Sanders is the youth thing. The New York Times and NPR and virtually every major news media organization is desperately courting Generation Next, trying to make them regular-paying readers and listeners, and with only middling success. And yet here's a 78-year-old grandfather who, without pandering or overtly courting, has created an entirely new segment of voters— people who pay to support him and brought fresh blood into a very tired party's congressional delegation. You'd think, if the Times and NPR didn't send their journalists to report out how Bernie's post-heart attack surge happened, 
They would at least hire consultants to analyze what Bernie's secret sauce is and try to adapt it to their own search for new audience. A final vignette. In 2016, two weeks before the election, I was in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, making a documentary about Trump voters. I called it The Unswayables because it was clear nothing would ever shake them from supporting Trump. It still streams at the BBC's website, if you care to listen. I was recording a link outside the old Bethlehem steel plant and fell in with a family, a guy about my age, explaining to a couple, his daughter and son-in-law, about coming back from Vietnam and getting a job at the plant, and then the plant closed down. It's an old story, with a million individual variations. I asked, do they mind if I put my sound machine on? And they said, go ahead. And then I ended up starting a family argument. The man's children were all in for Trump. Ronnie, the man my age, said, that man's a monster. His words, that man's a monster. I can't vote for him. Ronnie had been all in for Bernie, but couldn't vote for Hillary. I later found out he didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election. I have other friends who also served in Vietnam who were all in for Bernie, but wouldn't vote for Hillary. It's a hell of a coalition Bernie has built, from young pacifists to 70-year-old gun-toting Vietnam vets. It would be nice if the American press dropped the cheap comparisons with a British politician they know nothing about and investigated just what it is about the current frontrunner that has created this quite unprecedented alliance. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Bible study for atheists next time. And to make sure the podcasts keep coming, please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation. Thanks.